morning, saints. Morning, sinners. Glad to have you here at Seoul. If you're uh, our guest today, my name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. Just uh, thrilled that you're with us today. Next week, we kick off Sex with the Lights On. Yeah, it's... uh, as a matter of fact, on your way out today, we're going to give, give, have, give, have blah, 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 blah. I just stutter when I start talking about sex. <laughs> on your way out, we have business cards for you to use as invites to your friends and neighbors. Or if you want, you can go so far as do some creative littering. We always go back to a, a story that happened when we were at 1111 Chevrier. When we first started, somebody left a weekly. We used to hand out paper weeklies. They left a weekly in a washroom at the Canada Inn. And that got somebody's attention to come to Seoul, and they became a part of our community. But we feel as, uh, as leadership, we sort of plan our year, and we do feel it's necessary that we deal with the issue of sexuality, and, and that's what we're going to kick off next week. And uh, we always caution parents, uh, as a, it's a PG-13 um, in, in the gathering, because sometimes there are words or, or issues that we will talk about that we'll address that some people maybe have not addressed with their kids yet, so our young life will still be operating, and that's fine, but as a part of our regular programming. But as a parent of four boys, I, I wanted our kids to hear about sexuality uh, talked about in the church and talked about in a healthy manner and in a biblical manner. So uh, as a father, uh, as a pastor, um, but also as a person that addresses all the issues, that we will talk about the issues that, that make themselves available to us, that it needs to be displayed and talked about within the walls of the church so that we can bring healthy discussion home and around the table. Uh, so grab a card or a few cards, uh, hand them out at work, hand them out, uh, uh, do some creative littering if need be, um, but do what you need to do to get the word out and to bring some friends and let, let's talk about sex, baby, and uh, go from there. Let's pray. God, this morning I'm reminded that even, uh, even when we come, we may, not be at the, we may not be at the place where we need to be. And we realize that you're closer than uh, we realize and that you're present in and around us. Uh, your presence is always constant. So slow us down this morning. So God, we need to slow down our lives and to gauge where we have been in the past few days and allow us to be with you today and absorb what you have been uh, for us so that we can most fully live in your way. And very simply put, Father, I just bless everything thought this morning, everything spoken and everything felt in our heart. And may we leave this place knowing that we have heard your voice and may we be healing agents to those that you have placed in our world. Amen. Just a shout out to those watching on uh, the podcasts uh, live. Ernie's in the hospital, he's watching, so we, we give him a thumbs up and let him know that we're praying. I got a, another praise report during prayer today. We've been praying for a young lady who's desperate need of a kidney transplant, and two volunteers have stepped up, and now they're going through the process to see if they're suitable donators. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the right word. Donors, donators, donors, yes. And, uh, you know, just to let you know that God is moving and uh, we are praying for people and it's great to hear answers to prayer. So this year we've sort of picked a theme that's called being real, being real with ourselves, being real with God and being real with others. And 
I want to spend some time this morning uh, by sharing my heart regarding the subject and where I see us as a church and hopefully share with you where I believe that God wants us to go. He wants us to be real. And being real with ourselves, I think, is actually probably one of the hardest things around because the hardest form of truth is being honest with yourself. You think about it, it's very rare to find people who are willing to be brutally honest with themselves because most people can't even see that there's an issue here. You can't see the issue. And when you think about it, the point is, is that the person to whom we lie to the most is ourselves. Amen? Yeah, of course. Our own hearts, when you think about it, lie to us. And we justify ourselves automatically. And even scripture says in Jeremiah 17, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it or who can know it? Now, I often hear people say, well, they have a good heart. To which I always respond, no, they don't. They don't. You don't know their heart. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us their heart is wicked. Don't say they have a good heart. The heart is deceitful. I know what you're saying. They did something nice. That's great. But our hearts are bent. We're highly skilled at telling lies to ourselves when you think about it. And, and we believe these lies that we tell to ourselves. And even when the most naive person, if they were standing nearby us, they would recognize it as a lie, even though we're telling it to ourselves. And so what happens when you think about it, if we're to be really transparent this morning, we operate a, a hypocritical double standard in our lives. We, we judge ourselves and our own motives and actions extremely generously without any inner debate or questioning of ourselves. And therefore, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, and we are quick to justify all of our actions. We are quick to excuse any of our own personal failures. We frequently block out, and, and therefore we don't hear any thought which contradicts questions, our own actions, or our own attitudes. That's who we are. We're so quick yet, on the other hand, to judge and condemn others for even the smallest mistakes or sins, are we not? Yes. Yeah, thank you. I was just making sure you're with me and haven't tuned me out. Because nobody likes a fake. Even in our airbrush culture, we despise counterfeits and we crave authenticity. That's the thing of the millennials. They want to be authentic. Everybody wants to be real. Really? What does it mean to be real? Nobody really knows, or so it seems. You know, is it simply enough to say we're real, or should we be able to see that we're real? And if so, what should we see? You know, are there marks of authentic faith in our lives that we should see lived out, or in the lives of others that we should see being lived out? Well, what about the watching the world? What should they see in the lives of real Christians? See, the church faces huge challenges to its ministry and mission. We see it all the time. There's radical pluralism, there's aggressive secularism, there's political polarizations, if you haven't figured that out. There's skepticism about religion. There's this revisionist of sexual ethics. There's this postmodern, post-Christian conceptions of truth. This is the world in which we live, but perhaps the greatest threat to the church's witness is the one of our own making, those of us who identify as believers. 
that we have an image problem. Many outside the church view the church as unchristian in their attitudes and actions. You identify yourself as a Christian, what happens? Well, there are terms then used to describe Christians. It's usually bigoted, homophobic, hypercritical, materialistic, judgmental, self-serving, and overly political. Right? And the reasons for this discouraging state of affairs is very complex. It's not just simple and easy answer. But we know one thing is certain, that when Christians are confused about what it means to be real, the spiritual decline of the church will follow. In our increasingly post-Christian culture where confusion about what it means to be real abounds and where there's distrust of organized religion, it's, it's reached its all-time high as now we, the church, need to get real. We have to clarify for ourselves and, and for a world that is watching what it means to live a life of authentic faith. And I think the blindness about our own faults also arises within our family life. It happens between husbands and wives. It happens at the workplace too. You know, it, it, in each of these contexts, we're required to live at close quarters with other people. Their ways, their attitudes may therefore get on our nerves, do they not? When she squeezes the toothpaste from the center. Who does that? When you have the one guy in your office on the keyboard who likes to hug and shake hands. You know what I'm saying? Who does that? But we're always blind to our own faults, like leaving the lid up, especially late at night. Or our own selfish ways, the things that we want in our own lives. Because when you think about it, what we do seems normal, and what we do is obviously right. And that's why we need to begin to ask ourselves some searching questions, how we must seem to other people, whether there's anything unfair, whether there's anything selfish or anything annoying, oh, in what we say or do, and that's what spouses are for. They bring it up. They illuminate it in our face. Why are you laughing? <laughs> no, I'm talking to my wife, not to you. She's... she's See, it's, it's, it's exceptionally rare for a person who has been in a conflict or argument to sit down and say this to themselves. Let's examine my own actions. Let's, let's examine my own attitudes here. Am I out of order myself? How, how must my actions and my words appear to others? Do we do, we do that? No, we don't. There are, there are obvious questions and we have to ask them to ourselves daily. I think that this is this, the process of introspection, but we very rarely do so, if ever. And if we did ask such questions, we would then come and see ourselves as, as others see us, and that would be a, a major revelation. And it would probably actually transform the way that we live. But to learn to ask ourselves obvious questions like, like that is, is like learning to speak a foreign language. We're just not used to it. It's alien to us. It runs entirely against our grain of our sinful nature. 
And so to begin to operate that way will require us to do what is contrary to our nature and, and the opposite of the habits that we've already learned in our lives. And likewise at work, if your boss criticizes or challenges you, instead of assuming that such criticism is obviously unfounded, unfair, ridiculous, whatever, stop and ask yourself, how do my actions appear to other people? What can be done to improve my style, my manner, my technique, my method, whatever it may be? But right away, the walls go up because we're right. It's essential for us to ask God to help you see what others can see in you and in your behavior. And if you're not, and if you're not able to, then you're bound to fail because being honest and objective about yourself is extremely hard to do, even with God's help when you think about it, let alone without it. And I wonder if in, in some situations we need to pray a prayer that sort of sounds like this, Lord, help me not react hastily or selfishly or, or do what my flesh nature wants, but help me to calm down and humble myself. Help me to see this situation and my part in it as you see it, as others see it. Help me to be objective and fair and honest and unbiased and rational. And even when evaluating my own actions, please open my eyes to see anything bad about myself that I'm currently blind to. I hate those prayers. And that's an unusual prayer when you think about it because God doesn't get many prayers as sincere as that. So it's going to touch his heart when you think about it. It's a sort of prayer that he delights to answer. That God will pour out self-knowledge into a person who asks for it genuinely. And, and it's not just seeking a, a justification or a vindication, but to truly see ourselves who we really are. And I think that's the key. Our prayer has to be sincere. Ever been in a situation when your friend or colleague asks you what you think of certain rights or wrongs and maybe a conflict that they're engaged in? Have you ever tried to answer them only then to discover that they're really not seeking an honest answer? They just want you to support them and affirm them in what they're doing. Our prayer can't be like that. Don't just ask God so that he can agree with you and take your side. I think when it means to be real with ourselves, we have to ask God with a real willingness to be corrected and even, if I can say this word, to be rebuked. And those are hard words. The more honest, the more open we are, the more gracious and polite that he can afford to be to us. And, and the interesting thing is if you don't approach it that way when you, when you leave God, uh, then, then what we do actually is we leave God with really only two options. And I think one option is that God honestly leaves, uh, leaves us in our own ignorance and self-delusion. He, he can't speak to us. He tries to speak to us. He tries to reveal himself to us, but we don't want to hear it, so we live in our own self-delusion. The other one, the other way is he gets some, some other person to come and talk to you. Maybe you know of this of which I speak. They, they're, they're, not gonna, they're not going to be anywhere nearly as gracious as God would be in the way that they tell you about your faults. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody drops into your life and they let you have it. 
And you may not realize it at the time, but if you are in, in a position where you're not listening to God, then I think it's actually better for you if he chooses option B, you know, the second one. Because he'll make sure that he puts people in our life who will tackle you, who'll tell you the truth about ourselves. And it was a revelation to me when I began to realize that such people, though, that, you know, though they didn't really know it, they're all working for God when they speak into my life. They're giving me some very blunt messages that I needed to hear that I'd never like hearing. And then you add to that, we go straight to God and we ask him to speak to us directly. And not just through other people. Because if you ask for, for that, he will correct you in all sorts of ways that are far easier to take than being corrected and rebuked by others because none of us like being corrected or rebuked by others. So how's God going to speak to me? Well, very simply, you know, God will speak to you through the scriptures. It's the Bible, the word, that's why it's called the word of God. It, as you read it, certain passages or words will begin to leap out at you. That's why we encourage people to read the scriptures so that God will speak to you. And some character in the Bible will be acting a certain way. And, and as you're reading that, the Holy Spirit may just whisper to you in your head, he's making the same mistake you made, you know? Or his attitude, her attitude is wrong, but so is yours. And the word of God. God begins to speak to us. The other thing is other people in passing say things. They, even where they maybe aren't speaking directly to you, God will use certain words, certain phrases in our culture, in our conversations with people that will resonate with us. And it could be something in a book. It could be something on TV or a radio. God will make it go like fluorescent or somehow make it resonate in your mind that it's applicable to you. He speaks to you. He's going to use whatever medium he can to get a hold of your attention as it lines up with Scripture. And again, thirdly, he speaks directly to you, your heart through and your mind by his Holy Spirit. You know, similar to the, the previous one, but, you know, God can plant a thought in our hearts and our minds that will contain some truth about us, some revelation, some opening about our motives, about our shortcomings, that, that all of a sudden he is speaking to us. And, and we call it our conscience, right? There's that check. There's that, that little mm, thing that we're, we war with. That's God speaking to us. And Whenever God chooses to speak to you and whatever method he uses, the crucial thing is that we are open to it. Don't brush him off. Don't, don't brush him aside or forget what he says. To be real with ourselves, we, we need to be teachable. We need to be willing to listen. And then he will speak to you more clearly and speak to you often. Are you sitting here this morning going, I don't hear from God. Are you even open? Because if what he has to say to you is loaded, maybe we don't want to hear from God. The moment we start to become willing to listen to God's voice, that moment, there's a spiritual battle that takes place and there are those demons who hang around us who, who seek to sort of join in the conversation, if I can put it that way. They, they want to plant thoughts in our mind as well. And so God is working one way, and we have Satan and his forces working the other way. And, and the only difference is that the thoughts that they put into your head are now the lies. And so we need to be able to learn to discern the difference between God's authentic voice and the false whisperings of demons. Demons. 
if I can put it that way. And that requires us to be alert, to, to weigh up the, the, the tone, the content of whatever thought comes into our minds. The battleground is in our minds. There's a war that's going on for our spirits. Um, and we need to be constructive. We need to be wholesome. We need to be consistent with Scripture. We need to be in line with all of God's ways and God's principles. And as we begin to move in that direction, we begin to hear God's voice. But, you know, if it is destructive, if what we're hearing is, is condemning, if it's contrary to the scriptures, if it clashes with one or more biblical principles, then I would say it's not from God. And we better not be listening to this stuff. Because once you begin to start to analyze your own thoughts in this way, it will become progressively easier to tell the difference. It's largely common sense in one respect. For example, somebody's claiming to be from your bank and they call you through and, and you get a phone call and they and ask you to reveal your PIN number, right? You should realize that something's wrong, right? That, that's just common sense, but some don't. And some people automatically hand over the information. That's our society. We call those scams. How can people be so stupid? They are, we are. Learning the real truth about ourselves is bound to be a long and uncomfortable process of discovery. Coming to terms with what sort of person we really are. Warts and all. We're all in the same boat. It's a vital first stage to the project of changing. And that's really what God is after when you think about it. it. It requires this rare quality of being honest with ourselves that no matter where it takes you or no matter where it costs, make that your aim and begin to cooperate with God as he seeks to build that level of honesty within you. That's the call, to be real with ourselves, people. Another word for being, word for being real is authenticity. Chuck Swindoll defined it this way. He says, authenticity occurs when real people say real things about real issues with real feelings. You need them all in there. When you're authentic, you live what you are. So to be authentic, really, is to be real. So what happens when we're not real? What happens when we're not authentic? We wear these things that we call masks. Obviously, we pretend to be what we're really not. Another pastor, he, he questioned this in regards to the church, and he said this, what's wrong with the church in our time? It's the place you go when you put on your best clothes, you worship, you eat together, but you don't bring your life. You leave it behind all your pain, your brokenness, your hopes, even your joys. The church, unfortunately, has become a museum to display the victorious life or finished products. Why do we pre pretend that we're strong when in fact that we're weak? Is it because we think that people won't love us if they know that what we're really like or that they'll only accept us if we follow a certain standard or behavior? That's why we make it appear that we're so super spiritual at sometimes, when we're actually struggling. We're afraid what people will think, that we're not good Christians. We wear a mask that says, I'm okay. 
I'm good, how are you? But we're actually crumbling inside and we don't like it, but we think people don't care. And so we don't open up because why? We're afraid of the prayer chain. Sorry, gossip. That goes hand in hand. And so the call is, is that we need to be authentic. We, it's hard to be intimate if there's hypocrisy. The Bible spells it out for us in Ephesians. It says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bearing one another in love. Making effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is over and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We need to be real with ourselves. So are you real with yourself this morning? Are you saying amen or ouch? Are there things that you need to look inside and go, I got to deal with some of this stuff? The next one is being real with God. And it's more than just regularly attending church and feeling good about God or accepting Jesus as your Savior. It goes beyond being baptized, receiving communion, reciting or singing the creed, or joining a particular church. As important as these things are, don't get me wrong, being real with God runs deeper than these things. Being real with God is understanding that real Christians are new creations. They're new creatures. And and physically, we don't look any different than others, or at least not in the way we dress or keep our hair. Yet real Christians are to be radically changed. They've experienced what the scriptures call new birth. They've received a new heart. They enjoy new desires, which makes them altogether new people who live new lives. So how can we be real with God? And I think it's laid out in Psalm 51. It's a classic example for us on how to be real with God. It's one of the few Psalms where we're given the historical background to the Psalm itself. The inscription in Psalm 51 reads, A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone to, uh, into Bathsheba. See, it identifies very clearly for us the incidents out of which this psalm arose. It was a time when David the king became involved in the sin of adultery and murder. And, and, and it's interesting that David himself actually records this for us. You know, he enters into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Later, he learns that she's pregnant, expecting a child. He panics. He now wants to cover up his actions. He knew that ultimately his sin would be found out, so he begins to take things into his own hands and begins to go and take another step. And I think that's always a trademark of sin in our lives, that it leads us into a deeper and deeper and deeper into the abyss, so to speak, further than what we've ever intended to go. And before he knew it, the, you know, uh, David found himself forced into a desperate attempt to, to cover up his wrong, his evil. So what does he do? He orders Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba, to be put in the forefront of the battle where he's going to be killed. And when the news of Uriah's death comes back to David, he felt that now he's off the hook. I can justify everything else. I'll marry Shaq up with Bathsheba. She has a kid, everybody. Nobody will know what's going on. And he continues to cover his sin safely, so to speak. 
But his conscience continues to haunt him. I keep asking people I, I, uh, this last week. Edgar Allan Poe wrote a story called The Telltale Heart. Has anybody seen the black and white movie of this? Okay, I remember it being shown when I was in, in junior high, okay? The Telltale Heart. Boom, 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 boom. Can you do that? Boom, 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 boom. That's, that, that's a great movie. Well, in this story, the main character, what he does is he commits a murder, and then he buries the body of the victim in the basement. But the murderer is unable to escape his guilt of, the, of his deed, the haunting guilt of his deed. And he begins to hear the heartbeat of the dead victim. Boom, 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 boom. And this is the movie. They showed this to us at junior high. And of course, you're watching the movie, and the guy's just pouring sweat, and this heartbeat is constantly going on, and it's relentless, and it gets louder and louder and louder, and eventually it becomes clear that the pounding which drives this man eventually crazy is not in the grave below the floorboards where he buried his victim, but it's his own heart. So you get the sense on how David felt. He, the guilt he felt became unbearable. And sin in the same way it does it. It haunts us and it haunts us, so to speak. And God loved David so much that he wasn't going to let him continue to damage himself and his entire kingdom by this hidden sin. So what does God do? He goes option B on David because David wasn't responding to the pull of his heart. God sent somebody. He sends his prophet, Nathan. And when David was con confronted by Nathan, he acknowledged his sin. He fell on his face before God. And out of that beautiful experience of confession, we receive this, this wonderful psalm, Psalm 51. And there's several things I want us to notice as we focus on verse 10. David writes, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And first and foremost, what we realize from David after his encounter, after option B steps in, is that there's a need for cleansing. There's a need for cleansing. About being real with God. Paul tells us in Romans uh, 3.23, all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. We're, we're all, all of us are in need of forgiveness. This concept of forgiveness, of being made right with God, is pictured in the scriptures in many different ways. And sometimes it's new birth, or, or the crossing out of the debt, or the breaking off of a heavy chain. But the picture of forgiveness that David uses here in Psalm 51 is perhaps the most common picture. And he describes forgiveness as cleansing. Create in me a clean heart, O God, he says. A few verses, uh, David wrote, wash me through, thorough and, and through uh, from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin. He says, purge me from my sin, I shall be pure. Wash me and I will be clean indeed. And so the, the words that David is using implies a thorough scrubbing, a resolve, right? An oxyclean is taking place here. Removing every speck. They're scrubbing until their skin literally shines, so to speak. It's a common image that we see in Scripture. 
In 1 John we read, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us, cleanses us from all sin. There's nothing better than putting on clean clothes, right? There is nothing better than getting in clean sheets to go to sleep. Is there not? How many people would love to go to a hotel and have unwashed sheets for the last month on your bed? Oh, I would do that all the time. It'd be my favorite. It grosses us out. And that's the picture of cleanliness coming through Scripture. There's a need in our lives for cleansing. And that that cleansing needs to begin in the heart. And David doesn't say, change the way I behave. You notice that? He doesn't say, change the way I behave. He says, create in me a new heart. And it's not that behavior is unimportant. It's, It's just that we need to start at the heart. We are only going through the motions if our heart is not right with God. There's something about being real with ourselves. Let's just be real with ourselves. That's the hard part. This is acknowledging that there's some stuff in my, my life that I just got to be real with. Maybe the way I, uh, I talk to people, address people, you know, whatever it may be, my attitudes, my prejudice, my biases, whatever it is. And then there's about being real with God and asking God for forgiveness to create in us a clean heart. We have to start there. If we're only going through the motions, if our heart is not right with God, then what's the point? When, when the heart is right, everything else begins to fall in place. In Ephesians, Paul speaks about the change in our lives, which ought to take place when we become believers. Paul describes it as putting off the old man, putting on the new man. You're called to be made new in your hearts. We're called to be made new in our minds. And cleansing needs to begin, and it has to begin in our hearts. And it's God himself who, I love this, creates the clean heart. David doesn't offer to do it himself. As a matter of fact, he knows he cannot. So when David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, he's actually going back to some Old Testament language, although he's Old Testament himself. He's going back to Genesis. And he's using the language of creation from the first passage of Genesis. That word that used create here in the psalm is the same Hebrew word used in Genesis. In fact, it's a word that's used in scriptures only of God. In fact, that, that it's a word that is used you know, to create something out of nothing. So only God has the power to speak into existence. And so it's not surprising that when David wants a clean heart, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, for only God can do it. Only God has the ability to take a heart of sin and create a new one. And the scriptures are so clear. It says we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Not on our own. It's not on our behavior modification or whatever it may be. It's a spiritual, a supernatural spiritual encounter with the creator of the universe who creates in us a clean heart. And people try to deal with their sin, their guilt in a number of different ways. Some people try to cover it up with a lot of good words. You know, thinking, you know, if I just do good words or do good deeds, I can balance the scales in my favor. But good deeds will not remove the guilt Only the sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross can take away sin, can take away our guilt, can take away our shame. 
And so we have to have this attitude that allows God to change our heart. And notice how David, he prepared himself before he asked God to create him a new heart. He says, the sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These God you will not despise. David was truly contrite. It means that, uh, that our inner self is crushed. You know, it doesn't mean that we're just feeling bad or remorseful about sin. It means that we have determined to desire to do something different. And a contrite heart doesn't seek to, to blame circumstances on other people or on God like our society does. You don't see David blaming God. You don't see David blaming Bathsheba. Oh, you tempted me. You, know, you shouldn't have come to my bedroom when I called you. That's your fault. No, you know, we hear the blame game all the time. Oh, everybody else is doing it. I'm just, you know, treating them the way they treat me. It's not personal. It's just business. It's not my fault. You know, the devil made me do it. And they're not, if they don't apologize, I'm like, we make so many stupid excuses. If we ever hope to have a clean heart, there has to be true contrition. And that's followed very closely by confession. And what does David do? He confesses his sin to God, and he goes, against you and only you have I sinned. Solomon said, he who covers their sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many people suffer for years because they're not willing to come to the place where they will acknowledge their sin. They're not willing to be real with God. And by not willing to be real with God, we're stuck in the same rut for years. We refuse to call it what God calls it. It's sin. It's sin. Oh, we can't use the word sin in today's culture, Jerry. It's not cool, especially in the church. Uh, where else are you going to find it? We refuse to be honest with ourselves and with God, and, and, and only after we accept the fact that we are sinners, which many of you do every Sunday when I greet you. Yet we have a harder time forgiving ourselves than God does. And we need to be assured that God does forgive if and when we do come to him because his word says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. We just accept it. So we need to be real. Real with ourselves. We need to be real with God. And we need to be real with others. And I think real Christians bear the mark of authentic faith in the ways that can be seen. Do you hear me? In the ways that can be seen, in the ways that can be heard, and in the ways that can be felt. And I think some Christians may be unsure about what it means to be real. Jesus does not. As a matter of fact, Matthew 7, 20, there are signs of reality. He, he basically goes out and he says, you, we will know, you'll be known by your fruit, is what he says. You're going to, if you're real, you'll bear fruit. And fruit is the telltale sign of authentic faith because fruit doesn't lie. It's there. It's productivity. In Luke 6, it says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. We 
are to show fruit. And Jesus underscores this whole point in the parable of the sower found in Matthew chapter 13. The parable itself is very straightforward. A farmer goes out, he sows uh, seeds in the field, and the seed represents the good news of the kingdom. It's sown on four different kinds of soil, each representing a different response to the message of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, in a few weeks' time, you're going to hear this broken down even further. And it's simple enough. The parable is actually quite simple enough, but here's the punchline. Only one type of soil brings fruit. Only one type of soil generates, germinates that seed, so to speak. You know, the, the seed that falls on the first soil hardly even gets started. You know, the, the birds come away or Satan comes and snatches it away. And I think what's even more troubling is the outcome of the seed sown on the second and the third types of soil. Why? Well, those soils respond positively to the message, at least initially. And, and these seeds appear to take root, and they begin to start growing into something real. And yet, as the story continues, we learn that neither seed bears fruit. Because neither seed sort of lasts to the very end. Neither, neither seed is ultimately real. You know, some of the seeds fail to develop roots, and they don't persevere when life gets hard and when their faith is tested. And all we see from this seed is sort of like maybe just a boost of enthusiasm, but no staying power. And perhaps this is somebody who's got excited about coming into the church and about fellowship. They're excited about forgiveness, but they but lack the love for Christ. And so they, they have this appearance of being real for a period of time. But over time, their faith proves to falter. And we assume that the, the third type of soil is the same, you know, a uh, similar response. They respond joyfully to the message, and yet the, it soon dissipates, you know, because there's other things in the world that grab its attention. I mean, maybe it's a career promotion, a vacation home, saving towards retirement, you know. The, the, the concerns choke away this fledgling faith, and eventually the person falls away. And you got to ask yourself the question, why is Jesus telling his disciples, his, his hearers, this crazy parable? Why such a blunt story about the distinction between authentic and inauthentic responses to his message? Why? Because evidently Jesus doesn't equate professing faith with possessing faith as we so often do. Instead, he, he warns his disciple that only one thing matters and that's bearing fruit. And I think it's provocative, but yet Jesus' point is simple. Real is something we can see. There's a visible difference between real and not real Christians. Ouch. I'm not talking works. I'm talking about what flows from within to without. Uh, It's not enough to say we're real. We should be able to see you're real. That's why we are called his ambassadors. We represent Jesus everywhere we go. We should see Jesus. People should see Jesus in us. So let's break it down and make it simple. Being real with ourselves means to understand that nobody's perfect. But there's something really special about you. And sometimes, how many of us need to hear? Nobody's perfect in this room, but each one of us, there is something special about you. 
And that's what God is caught up on. And being real with God is accepting the fact that he knows us, that he loves us, and that there's nothing to hide from him. And when we become real with others, is that we're made to love each other and people see it in us. They may not like it. They may despise it. They may speak out against it. They may even do something negative against you. But the fact is they see there's something different in us. And so being real means that no matter who you are, and the way I bring it home is that there's always a place for you here. Because when, when people see a great mess, and you can look at the person next to you and say, you're a mess. God sees greatness. What God can do with a church that's on fire for him is change the world. It's been done before. I believe it can be done again. For all firing on the same cylinders to accomplish his purpose and his will by being real with ourselves, by being real with him, and being real with each other. Now do me a favor. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Okay, you don't have to close your eyes, but at least bow your heads. The reason I'm asking this is just going to help you concentrate. I want to close our time together maybe with just some practice. And Josh, if your team can come up. For some of us today, the thing that we need to pray about right now is the reality that we're not real with ourselves. And, and you know who you are. That we have a hard time believing that, that God delights in us and that he loves us. And so what I'm asking us right now, just in the quietness of our heart, is, is uh, to pray that the reality of his love for you and the reality of his delight for you is seen so clearly in the deepest parts of your being. Maybe others of you need to be real with God. Maybe, honestly, you're just walking in unconfessed sin, secret sin. And you haven't confessed this to God, your rebellion to God. You know it. You're like David. And so maybe you just need to take this moment just to ask for forgiveness and ask that the Lord would restore you to the joy of his salvation, as David said. So it's a time of joy. Just release this crap that's on you. Ask for forgiveness. The stain, be washed. Spend a moment or two asking the Holy Spirit to stir up your heart, to stir up your mind that God himself would grant you belief and relief that God himself would ignite a passion that you would you know look at the space in which he had placed you and then in the next few weeks you would see the significant growth because you've dealt with it and you're now moving forward
I want to pray for those people in that state right now. Lord, I thank you that no matter where we have been and what we have done, that you're willing to accept us and that your forgiveness and mercy is extended to us so that whatever mess we have made of our lives in the past, you are inviting us into an amazing work. Oh, may we embrace that today. May we be changed from the inside out as we walk out of here, God, with you. Maybe your prayer is that you need need to ask God to help you be real with others, being intentional with people who don't know Jesus. Maybe you just need to pray for courage. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe somebody brought it, you or invited you, and you're, you're sick and tired of trying to earn everybody's love, right, and acceptance. You've been trying to perform all types of religious deeds, non-religious deeds. You, you just realize it's just all a waste of time and garbage. Well, until you live your life in response to God's love, it is just garbage, to be honest. Maybe you're trying to please your spouse, your parents, your parents, your children, your employers, your employees, your religious authorities. Maybe you need to acknowledge that all these efforts are nothing and that God simply loves you because he's created you. Maybe some of you, you walked in, you got these crippling sins from the past and maybe you've done things that nobody knows about and it's eating you alive and and it's like that telltale heart. You're hearing the thump of that, that heart, but really it's your own. You know, how can God love me when he knows all that I've done? Well, guess what? God knows that you're all messed up. God knows that you're all screwed up and he loves you before you even did those things. Do you realize that? And he loves you still. He just wants you to be real with him. Many people step through these doors into a gathering like this and, and say that God could never love me for all those things that I've done. No, no, God loved you before. Remember that. He loved you then, he loves you now, and he wants to take all that burden off you, and he wants to create in you a clean heart. And one of the ways of demonstrating that is that you place your faith in Christ. You pray to invite Christ into your life, and and prayer becomes our expression of belief. You believe, and that's a response. That's where you sort of check off the box. That moment in your life now where you begin to follow Jesus. And it gives us this opportunity to express our new belief and to start following Jesus anew. And maybe that's you today. When we receive Christ into our hearts, it involves turning from God and self and trusting Christ to come into our lives, to forgive us of our sins, to make us what he wants us to be. Just to agree intellectually that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins is not enough. Read the scriptures. We receive Christ by faith. It's an act of our free will. And you can receive Christ right now by faith through prayer. And it's just talking with God because he knows your heart. So don't worry about getting your words just right. But let me pray for you right now if that's you. Jesus, I want to know you personally. And thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. And I open the door of my life and I receive you as my Savior. Thank you for forgiving me my sins and giving me eternal life and giving me a clean 
heart, creating in me a clean heart. So now, Jesus, take control of my life. Help me to be real with myself, be real with you and with others, and make me the kind of person you want me to be. You know, if that's the first time you've ever prayed that prayer, then congratulations, because in Luke 15, it's the one sinner accepts Jesus Christ as a Savior, the angels rejoice. There becomes a party in heaven going on. And if that is you, you need to tell somebody. Tell us. Let us know at the welcome desk when you're walking out. Take a, a card that's on the table. Check it off. Fill it up. Drop it off. We want to celebrate with you. And now for the rest of us. stand with me. I want to pray and then uh, give you the blessing. On the way out, our grade fives are going to give you chocolate. Woohoo. The whole, the whole issue of chocolate is really interesting because Easter, it, it started, the, the tradition of eggs is that they, uh, the church didn't allow people to have eggs during the time of Lent. You would not eat eggs. And so on Easter Sunday morning, when the resurrection was celebrated, the family would hide boiled eggs for the children to go and to find, and uh, then you could eat the egg after the celebration, after the fast was broken. Well, 17th, 18th century, they started introducing chocolate and made chocolate eggs. The first chocolate eggs were really bad. And then they started to develop the chocolate, and that's the, the trend. And so this idea that after a fast, after Lent, there was a celebration, and hence we have Easter, the chocolate bunny, the chocolate eggs. There's other types of cultural stuff that's thrown in there too, but nobody really cares. Except for Walmart and those guys who make money. But that's why we have chocolate, chocolate eggs. Well, you're not going to get chocolate eggs. You're going to get some wonderful chocolate because it's the, today's the end of our 21 days of prayer and fasting. And we want to celebrate it, and we want it to be a reminder for you when you walk out of here to celebrate. And I want you to have, be reminded, too, is that not only are you getting chocolate, you're welcome. You're, uh, those cards are going to be set up on the table outside. Grab a bunch. Grab a handful. Hand them out. Don't just leave them in your car. If you want to do creative littering and go across all the different parking lots, uh, you know, we chase people off our parking lot all the time who are doing creative littering on windshield wipers, do that. Do it at Costco. It's the best place to do it. But litter, <laughs> invite your friends. We're going to talk about sex. Uh, there are, on our website, if you want to go to the Facebook website, hit the links. There's, there are questions that could be asked. We'll uh, contemplate your questions as they start coming in. But we want to be a safe place and a healthy place to talk about the state of our culture and, and where we stand sexually speaking. But we want to be real. We want to be real with ourselves. We want to be real with God, and we want to be real with each other. So high-five somebody next to you and give them a smile. God, we acknowledge that we live in a God-made world, and we acknowledge that you have revealed yourself in the creative realm, and you have revealed yourself in the simple concept of conscience. 
that you've revealed yourself in our cravings to live in a kingdom where your will is done everywhere. And we acknowledge that with joy, with laughter, with food, with chocolate, with provision, with meaning, with significance. All this comes from you and it's not something that is random. So God, we want to be free from the bondage of always trying to earn or gain approval and gain acceptance. We want to be free from the rest and the fact that uh, that you love us and accept us in spite of all that we have done wrong. That while we were still sinners, that you loved us. And before you created the universe, you loved us. Before the foundations of the earth, you loved us. And time is measured and existed. You still loved us with an everlasting love. And it becomes totally overwhelming. So help us to live lives in response to that love. And I ask for those who feel lost, that maybe that they lost the fire or whatever that is, please show them that they are loved. That would that we do what we do in response to what you have already done. So now, Father, help us to be real with ourselves, with you and with others. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing, those receiving the blessings and did likewise. And let love be genuine, soul sanctuary. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with deep affection, thinking of others more highly than yourself. Serve the Lord with zeal. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. And may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us by his grace, who gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts, strengthen you in every good deed and word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Now go and live the church.